0: the last book of the Bible, uh, to book of the Revelation, in chapter 3, uh, as we come, as I said earlier, to the second last message in our current sermon series, uh, Jesus' Letters to the Seven Churches. Uh, this uh, sixth letter is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, it was a city about 30 miles uh, southeast of Sardis, the last uh, church that we looked at, Uh, You'll see there that those churches, uh, starting at number one, sort of go around in a a bit of a circle, and uh, we're at number six there, the city of Philadelphia. Uh, The city was intended, originally, way back when, to be a kind of a missionary city, to introduce Greek culture um, to the surrounding region. So it stood as a a kind of a doorway, a, a doorway to the rest of Asia Minor and this particular church that we're looking at this morning in that city was the youngest and the smallest of the seven churches, Uh, but God had opened a huge door for this faithful congregation, and though small in size, it was a church that, as we'll see, Jesus uh, heartily approves of. Now, In our study uh, of the letters to the seven churches, uh, so far we've learned that each each of the churches uh, was unique, Uh, And and in different ways. And because of that, uh, each church provides us with a a type of the kind of churches that have always existed throughout the history of Christendom. Uh, We've seen, uh, we saw first of all in Ephesus, a church which fought valiantly against error and against heresy and hated evil, but it was condemned for lack of love. Uh, We saw in the second church, a church that exhibited love only to be condemned for a lack of sound doctrine and and for its tolerance of sin. And then we saw a church that was spiritually alive in every way, only to be persecuted uh, for Christ and for their stand. We've seen a church physically alive in every way, only to be told that they were spiritually dead. We've seen a church, uh, the last church uh, at Sardis, that thought it was poor, but God said it was rich. So we're going to read now about the, uh, the church in Philadelphia in uh, Revelation chapter 3. And as we've done before in this series, I'd like you to stand with me as we read God's word, uh, uh, either following it in your Bible or listening to it as it's read. And of course, I want to read again the blessing that God promises to those who read this book and also the warning at the end uh, that he gives to those who, who, who interfere with, with his word So we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And then at the end of the book, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this book, if anyone adds anything to it, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away, The words from the book of the prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And so we're going to read about the church in Philadelphia, chapter three, beginning at verse seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, there are words, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, uh, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And since you have kept my command uh, to endure patiently... I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who is an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You may be seated. God will bless His word. Now, in most of the letters that we've been looking at, as you know, uh, there's usually a corrective command because most of the churches uh, had strayed away from the truth. So Jesus tells them how they have to repent and to return to God's ways. But in this letter to the church at Philadelphia, there's no criticism. And neither is there any corrective command. Imagine. Imagine for a moment being such a church. Or for that matter being a Christian. That Jesus doesn't criticize. Being a Christian that Jesus didn't have to give any further command to. And although there's no corrective command here. There is some counsel that's given to this church in Philadelphia. In verse 11. Behold I come quickly says Jesus. Hold fast to what you have. That no man take your crown. They're given counsel about how to stay steadfast and faithful to God, whatever circumstances they may find themselves in. And that's good, good counsel in any time, in any generation, to hold fast to the faith. Don't waver. Now, let me remind you uh, that prophetically, uh, that John, uh, what John is giving us here in his vision is the complete timeline and prophetic history of the church of Jesus Christ on earth. A divine revelation concerning his church, age by age, if you like, from Pentecost uh, to the age in which we now live. In other words, each of these churches typifies, chronologically, a particular period in church history. Remember, we started in Ephesus, which was the loveless church. And we saw that the characteristics there equated dramatically to the post-apostolic age of the church from Pentecost to just after the death of the last apostle. We saw that, generally speaking, the doctrine of the church was pure, but their devotion to God was beginning to wane uh, inasmuch as they had left their first love. And then the next period was seen in that of the church of Smyrna, and how, not long after the apostle's death, there was a period of great persecution from the 1st to the 4th century under 10 Roman emperors. Uh, uh, very, very severe persecution uh, and, and 10 very strenuous persecutions of Christianity in the 10th period lasted for 10 years. Can you imagine that? Being persecuted as a church for being a Christian uh, for uh, 10 years or more. And then after Smyrna came Pergamos and we saw that it was a compromising church. And Pergamos uh, Pergamos means married. And, and during the 4th and 5th centuries, we find that the emperor Constantine, after his spurious or fake, if you like, conversion to Christianity. He made Christianity a state religion in 313 AD. And from that moment on, the church lost, generally speaking, its faithfulness to Christ because it became allied or married to the world. And then after Pergamos came Thyatira, the corrupt church. Uh, You you remember me mentioning that, that Thyatira meant continual sacrifice. And then during the 6th and 7th centuries, We see the rise of what we recognize today as Roman Catholicism, and while it espouses many of the tenets of of Scripture that we also believe, they also celebrate the continual sacrifice of the Mass, the infallibility of the Pope, and other dogmas, and unbiblical practices and beliefs. And of course, in the 16th century then, moving forward, there was the Reformation, and here enters the church at Sardis uh, through, uh, through the Reformation. Although the Reformation was an awakening of God to the rediscovering of the truth of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, church history records and reveals that what started out as a work of the Holy Spirit and God's grace in the Reformation, once again over time, over the next centuries, uh, once again things developed uh, and ecclesiastical bodies and systems were established by men and as such, while the Reformation was of God... Uh, Out of the dearth and the deadness of Protestantism over the centuries uh, that it would become in in, in the future centuries, it was going to take a further gracious intervention or revival to bring evangelicalism back to the simplicity of New Testament truth. And so viewed from this prophetic standpoint... And Christian church history, the Faithful Church of Philadelphia foreshadows the period of the Great Awakening, the great evangelical awakenings of the 18th and 19th centuries. And, and th- this awakening, uh, these revivals, followed a time of relapse among the post Reformation churches. And so we had the evangelical awakening, known in England as the Puritan movement, among whom was John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace. It also encompassed the great Wesleyan revival, George Whitfield's fiery preaching in England, and Jonathan Edwards' fiery preaching in America. It was also a time of revival and missionary endeavor when William Carey in England got a vision of the need in India, David Livingstone similarly in in Africa, the American missionary uh, Drownam Judson went to Burma, Hudson Taylor went to minister in inland China, uh, and it was also the time of the great emergence of of, of evangelists whose names we all know, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, to name but a few. And we are today a couple of centuries on from the time of that great uh, evangelical awakening. And perhaps it's time for us to say today, do it again, Lord, do it again and begin, begin in me. Because if there was ever a time when the sleeping church needed an awakening, it's today. It's today. Now let me ask you a curious question. Uh, what sort of church do you think God prefers? Baptist churches? Methodist? Presbyterian? Church of Ireland? Elam Pentecostal churches? Brethren churches? We could name others. Or maybe we could ask it another way. Does God prefer rural churches? We could say Monaghan Elam is a rural church. Does he prefer city churches? Mega churches? Little house churches? Church plants? Independent churches? New churches? Cathedral churches? Well thankfully we're not left to wonder about the answer uh, to that sort of question because when we look at these seven churches, no particular type is mentioned. You see when Jesus looks at a church as he does and as he is right now, he's Stu- not studying outward things. He's looking for the deeper signs of growing faith, of fervent love, of, of abiding hope. He wants his church to be motivated by love, to be founded on the truth, to be strong under pressure and, and unashamed of his name. And of the seven churches, Smyrna that we've already looked at and Philadelphia, these are the only two churches that receive no words of condemnation. And it's not coincidental that both churches were facing strong opposition because of their bold witness for Christ. You see, hard times make for strong, true churches, especially when the hard times come because the church refuses to compromise the gospel. And as I look out on the world today, I can see that there's there's an invasion, almost a tsunami of opposition, even persecution coming against uh, the Christian church and Christians who would stand up for biblical values. So we may be called to that uh, even in our day. And while the letter to the church in Smyrna was a challenge to them to be faithful unto death, this letter to the church at Philadelphia is filled with only compliments and, and praise. Uh, the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia were faithful, they were godly, they were loyal, they were effective, they were models throughout all of church history of good, solid, regenerate, uh, faithful churches. And I don't want to make a point that maybe isn't uh, isn't really here this morning, but it strikes me that the blood-bought, redeemed, saved church has always existed uh, amidst a mixture of other so-called Christian churches. God has always had a remnant throughout the ages of those who stayed faithful. But you know, as you look at these seven churches, if only two out of seven were completely faithful, And if that's some kind of a typical percentage, then a weak, sinful church is the more common church to find, isn't it? In contrast, this church in Philadelphia is typical of a church that God is using for his glory. I don't know about you, but I want us to be a church that God can use. I want God to look down upon us and say, there's a church, there's a church, and there's a people that I can do something with. For my glory because of their faithfulness and their stand for me see Philadelphia was created as I said to be a gateway to the central plateau of Asia Minor the city was often damaged by earthquakes which resulted in a fear that kept a large part of the population from living within the city walls And today there still exists actually a town on the ancient site of Philadelphia called uh, Alashir in Turkey. There's a population of around 15,000. And the word Philadelphia comes from two Greek words philo meaning love and the word adelphos which means brother and so the, the, the name Philadelphia has come to mean city of brotherly love. And we know nothing about this church except what's in this letter. These few verses. There's no mention of it anywhere else in scripture but somehow Uh, probably when Ephesus was being planted and and strengthened in the three years of one of Paul's missionary journeys, the word of God probably spread uh, throughout Asia Minor, and some people may have went to Philadelphia and maybe started a church there. In all the other letters, Jesus uses symbols that come from the vision that John recorded uh, of him in the first chapter to describe himself, but in this letter, Jesus makes no reference to, to that vision. He uses other titles to describe himself and to reveal to them who he is and what he does. Who he is, he says, is the holy one, the true one. He is the holy one, the morally perfect one whose character is without flaw or blemish. He's the true one, the one behind everything that exists. And what he does, he says, is that he holds the keys of David, the key of David. Now that's a reference to, a, to an incident recorded in, in Isaiah 22 when in the days of King he, uh, Hezekiah there was a, a kind of a chief of staff whose name was uh, Shebna and he had been caught in a, in a personal scam run for his own benefit and as a result God says a very unusual thing about him in Isaiah 22:18. 18. He says I will take him and whirl him around and around like, like a discus thrower you know and hurl him into a far country. A prophecy that Uh, he'd be sent into exile in Babylon and he was and he'd be replaced by a godly man named Eliakim of whom God said in a couple of verses on in Isaiah 22, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. And so Jesus here in this vision Uh, that that john had is referring back to that passage in isaiah and he applies it to himself and he says i am the one who shuts and no one can open i and and the one who opens and no one can shut you see as i said earlier god governs the events of history on earth and he can't be opposed doesn't matter who's who's in charge of what country he will open some doors and he will close other doors And what he opens, no one will shut. And what he decides to shut, no one can open. No human power can contravene what God determines. And so to a church like the faithful church in Philadelphia, God says he will open doors. He's going to open doors of ministry and service. And no one's going to be able to shut them. And you know, this is a very unique description of the letter writer as he introduces himself and we should, shouldn't rush over that because we so easily and routinely forget I believe we, we easily and routinely forget who our God really is to describe him as he who is holy refers to no one else other than God because such absolute holiness belongs to God and to God alone and we need to remember that we can't treat God flippantly and casually as a man upstairs or something like that He is the Holy One. God repeatedly is identified in Scripture as the one who is holy. Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he's called the Holy One in many other passages. Identifying him as absolutely sinless. Absolutely unblemished and flawless. And of course you know the word holy means to be separate. To be separate. Uh, And God is absolutely separate from sin so utterly unlike us and to take it a step further this is also a common title for the Messiah in Mark one twenty-one, Jesus went into Capernaum and, and he entered into the synagogue teaching as one having authority and in verse 23 of Mark, 20, uh, Mark 1 we read just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit who said what are we to do with you Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the Holy One of God Even the demons knew his messianic title, the Holy One of God. And then in John 6, 39, Simon Peter says, we have believed and come to know that you, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. We find it repeated as well in Acts 3 and 14, where Peter says to the Jews, condemning them, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You chose Barnabas over the Holy One. He is the Holy One. Do we remember that? Or do we take God for granted? Remember it well. And remember it often. That the Lord Jesus Christ. Shares the holy sinless pure nature of God. Because he's God. He's the Holy One. And because he's holy. He can't tolerate sin. First Peter 1.15 says. But the Holy One. Who called you says. Be holy yourselves. In all of your behavior. I think so often we fall into the cultural compromise of treating God too casually. When he, the Holy One, demands holiness in our character. He demands holiness in our behavior. It's amazing to me that here he introduces himself as the Holy One. Obviously separate from and and, and can't tolerate sin. And yet he looks at this church. In Philadelphia, with his penetrating, omniscient, all-seeing eyes. And he says, I know. I know what you do. I know your deeds. And as holy as he is, and as all-seeing as he is, he gives them no rebuke. No threat. No warning. No hint of condemnation to this church. And you know, if the Holy One of God commands this church, they're to be commended indeed. Must have been some church. Secondly, he introduces himself as uh, he who is holy and who is true. And that combination of those two attributes is repeated in many places in Scripture to identify God in the the magnificent attributes of holiness and absolute truth. He's true in himself. He's the author of truth. He's the revealer of truth. And as he looks at his church, he, he sets the highest premium in the universe on truth. And truth's on the scaffold these days. There are many people who are trying to undermine truth and say that things aren't true like they used to be. And and God's word isn't what it used to be. And in the midst of so much that's falsehood and and error, Jesus is upholding truth as an absolute standard. And he encourages the, the, the folks in the Philadelphian church by saying, I'm absolutely holy and I put a premium on truth and my holiness and my truth have scrutinized you and there's nothing to condemn. Wow, wouldn't you like God to say that about you or, or me? It poses the reality for me and for all of us, I suppose, that it's possible for a church, a church with people like us, to be looked at by the Holy One and the True One and to be commended. And my prayer is, Lord, let it ever be so here in Monaghan Elam as you look upon us, that you see us as being a people who are striving after, moving towards holiness, and maintaining the truth of the gospel notice that this verse also describes Jesus as having a key but it doesn't say that Jesus has a key does it? it says Jesus has the key the key. he has the master key if you like that means that Jesus can get into everything he can unlock all the doors of our life concerning our health and our employment and our relationships because if we ever need something from heaven we need someone who has the key that can unlock that particular door don't we? And in order for us to have the victory on earth, we need the resources of heaven. And so if it seems hard at times to break break through to heaven for whatever it is that you're, you're, you're pleading God for, that you need, could it be that we're using the wrong key? You see, a key is a very simple symbol in scripture. And whenever you read about a key, you can equate a key with control. Whoever has the key has the control and the authority. Whoever has a key has control and authority. And here Jesus says, I am the one who has the key of David. I'm the one who can open the treasure house of God and pour out my royal riches on you for whatever it is that you need. And so the letter writer here identifies himself clearly as God, holy God, true God, sovereign God. And that God sees them and knows them. And looking at them closely through his holy eyes, through the eyes of his truth and his sovereignty and his power, he finds nothing to rebuke them about or to correct them about. He finds nothing to warn them about. What an unbelievable encouragement this is to, to faithfulness. And what a happy day it must have been in that little church in Philadelphia. God looked over them and while they weren't perfect, they were found or not not found wanting as far as God was concerned. The key, Jesus himself, had opened the door of salvation, the door of blessing, the door of opportunities for service and evangelism, and they were found faithful. And I hope you see how congratulatory the whole spirit of this letter is, because I think sometimes we assume that God's never happy. Never happy with his people. He's never happy with his churches. He's a grouchy old man up there just wanting to condemn us all the time. No, he's not like that. Know that there's no such thing as a perfect church because there's no such thing as a perfect person, of course. But it's possible within the realm of reason and biblical revelation to assume that God can look at a church and feel like it's a church that's worth celebrating over. I would like to believe that our church is like this little church in Philadelphia. And if Jesus were ever to write us a letter, I'd like to read it. And while I don't know what he'd say, I hope it would read something like, like this one. And then he continues with those familiar words, I know your deeds. And it's a reminder of the fact that sometimes we need to be reminded of that the omniscient God knows the real story of our lives. He knows everything there is to know about us. And he commends them for several things, which I believe are still the things that the Lord would commend in any church or commend in any Christian. First of all, a little further down in the verse, he says, you have a little power, a little Dunamis, get the word dynamite from that. You're a dynamite church, he says. It might seem like you're, like he's saying, well, you're pretty feeble. You've only got a little, a, li- a little power. But he isn't saying that. He's saying you've got a lot of power. You've got a lot of power. You're small, but you're mighty. This is a small church, but they had some real influence in the city. Now, this isn't a sin issue to say they had uh, little power. Uh, he, he's not saying you have little power and you ought to have a lot of power. He's saying for your smallness, you've nonetheless got great spiritual power, influence. And it's not unreasonable to assume that they were much like Jesus' description of his own disciples in Luke chapter 12 when he said to them, you're a little flock, you're so small. And this little group may have been few in number, probably poor, probably uh, generally run-of-the-mill ordinary folk, but isn't that the stuff that power comes from? When God takes Someone and, 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 and they submit to him and to his authority over them and he uses them for his glory. It reminds me of the great principle that the Apostle Paul identifies in 2 Corinthians 12 as he gives his own testimony of some of the struggles in his own life and he, assu- he sums it up by reminding himself and, and, and through God's word reminding us of God's grace and strength. He said, but, but he said to me, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, I am strong. When I'm weak in myself, I can be strong in Christ. And Sometimes in the weaker, uh, the weaker the vessel, but yielded to God, the stronger the spiritual power. And then he says, secondly, this church, these people were characterized by obedience because he says, Although you have little strength, you have kept my word. You have kept my word. They were bound to the scripture, to the truth of God's word. They didn't deviate from a pattern of obedience. And in John 14, Jesus defines the nature of discipleship like this He says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and I'll come to him and make, we will make our abode with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. How's your love for God these days? How's your obedience to God these days? And your obedience is predicated on the, the fact that you, you know what you have to obey. And what you know what you have to obey, you get through reading his word, right? And so how is that going for you these days? How is your love for God these days Is expressed in your obedience to the teaching of his word? In John 15, Jesus repeats the same thing. Greater love is no man than this, uh, that one laid down his life for his friends. Now you are my friends if you do what I command you. These people in Philadelphia were friends of God. They were obedient. The word was preached and taught and they applied it. And isn't that what what the, 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 the writer uh, John the Revelator tells us in that first chapter in these opening verses blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it. Take it to heart what's written in it because the time is near. Take it to heart means that you're going to act on it. You're going to obey it. You're going to follow through. Now don't, don't miss this because we live in a day in which doctrine is cast aside in the name of ecumenicalism which is the road to a one-world church. That's where it's headed, folks. The politically correct church today jumps on board the train of ecumenicalism and toots its horn about tearing down the walls that divide us. Let's just all get together under a big tent and sing "Come, ya, no matter what we believe. That's the, that's the sort of culture, religious culture, that we're, we're, we're experiencing. Now, I don't say that we have to dot every I and cross every T the same way. But there are certainly a set core of biblical beliefs and truths that should be considered non-negotiable. We're not backing down on them for anybody's sake. You know, If you're talking about tearing down the walls of bigotry or walls of prejudice or injustice, I say, amen, brother, let those walls come down. Or if you're talking about tearing down the walls of... Jealousy maybe between good Bible believing preaching churches, I'm all for that. Let you know it's high time that we see each other as on the same team, kingdom people, not in competition. Whatever name is over the the, the, the door of the church. If you're talking about turning down the walls of preferences that can divide churches, you know, styles of worship and things like that, I'm saying, give me a crowbar. Because since when were we supposed to make methods and preferences our gods? But you know if you're talking about tearing down the walls of truth. Biblical truth. I'm saying I'm not touching that wall. God built it. And I'm not going to start tearing it down. We have a biblical mandate to contend contend for the faith. And even to separate from those who walk contrary to the gospel. Romans 6.17 Now I beseech you brethren. Mark them which cause divisions and offences. Contrary to the doctrine that you have learned. And avoid them. And the very next verse says. For they that are are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And there's a lot of that going on today. But there's a third characteristic that Jesus compliments these Philadelphian believers about. Not only did they have power, not only were they uh, people uh, who practiced obedience, but they also displayed loyalty. He says to them, you haven't denied my name. Jesus' name means all that he is. And I wouldn't doubt that there, were some, there was some heavy persecution. Jesus refers to it from the synagogue of Satan. He alludes to it in verse 9. As a local Jewish synagogue, they would have been hammering like crazy on these people in this evangelical little church, trying to get them to deny the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, if nothing else. However, we know the details of the persecution. Um, but through it all, Jesus says, You've stuck up for me, you were faithful and loyal. And I wonder, if we were to put that lens on our own lives today, how, how, how good have we been about being loyal to Jesus? Or has there been a sense in which we've maybe tended at times to de- deny him? And then there was one fourth characteristic that this church and these people had. They not only displayed spiritual power, exercised obedience to God's word, showed loyalty to his name. They also evidenced endurance. Verse 10, you have kept my command to endure patiently. It wasn't always easy. I'm sure sometimes it was hard. Lots of things come in and out of the life of the church. Some people patiently, faithfully, uh, perseveringly endure through it all. In fact, didn't Jesus say that? Those who endure to the end shall be saved. But some didn't. And some don't, but the people in this church did. Patient endurance is a very special characteristic of spiritual strength because it can take the bad times, it can take the trials, it can take the difficulties, and it will reveal itself in, in staying faithful. And this is the kind of endurance that Jesus himself displayed, didn't he? In fact, you could even translate this with that kind of emphasis. You have kept the word of my perseverance in the sense that you have done it the way that I did it. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 5, Paul prays, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And this is a faithful, enduring church through trials, through persecutions, through difficulties. Faithful believers who took it all patiently in the hope of God's care and his deliverance. And sometimes you know, you know this as well as I do, that the best thing you can do going through a tough time is to endure patiently. Sometimes it means not giving up when you feel like throwing the towel in. And Jesus makes a precious promise to these suffering saints as he looks ahead, as he talks about the time of trial that will engulf the whole world before Christ comes to establish his kingdom on earth in the last days.